A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Rings of Power Lorecast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm John, and my usual co-host David is currently journeying in the Misty Mountains, looking for a random Silmaril tree, and will return for the season finale. So today, I'm joined by Jim from Bald Move. Thanks for being here, Jim. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me back. You're returning. We thought it was Aaron this week, but it's you, and then we're going to have Aaron on the second half. Uh, I'm happy you're back. I feel like this is a good episode to have you on, because... I'm probably as as confused about the lore as you are this week. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So this is our Rings of Power lore cast on Season 1, Episode 5, Partings. In this episode, we have five segments. A discussion of Earendil the Mariner, father of Elrond. Uh, the real deal on Mithril, the mysterious ore of the dwarves. Another part of my interview with returning Tolkien scholar Marilyn Pukila. A listener feedback segment and... A post-credits spoiler segment. Don't worry, we'll give you all the warning you need. Before we get started, quick reminder that you can send feedback to secondage at baldmove.com, and we'll get to those questions on the next episode. If you want to talk Tolkien with us sooner, join us on the Baldmove Discord, link in the description, and at baldmove.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds, to get all our content about the Rings of Power and other shows this fall, like The White Lotus and The Wheel of Time. And please, if you have a moment, rate and review our podcast to help other people find it. Now, Jim, let's go a little wide with this first before we get into our segments. What did you think of this episode, first of all? I thought this episode was pretty clunky. Not not from a lore perspective. Obviously, I have no real insight into that. You're the lore master, but I've seen a lot of television, and I can tell you this one is a little clunky in its writing. Uh, I felt like there were a couple of scenes that just got left on the cutting room floor that I really needed to see to connect the dots on a couple plots. But uh, overall, I think I like this episode. And Durin and Elrond and Gal Gilgalad. That that sounds right. Gilgalad. Gilgalad. Uh, not, not Gal Gadot? No? It, it uh, could be Gal Gadot. Yeah, it could be anything. <laughs> maybe. Uh, they saved the episode for me, frankly. You like Gilgalad? I did like the Gilad stuff. Yeah, mm, we disagree. Uh, that's okay. okay. That's okay. <laughs> I agree with you on Doran, though. I think that was. I mean, Elrond and Doran together are, are excellent. That's the traveling road show that I wanted. Oh yeah, and the Meteor Man stuff continues to 
to baffle me, befuddle me with whether he is good or bad, uh, who he might be, whether he's Sauron or Gandalf or any of the other uh, wizards you could name. But I don't know. I find that stuff uh, super intriguing, let's say. Hmm. Yes, I, I am also liking the Harfoot mystery. Uh, I was a little, I thought it was dragging on a little bit too much this episode, but uh, okay. uh, I, I felt in general that this episode was really a midpoint episode. It was very much set up for the next episode, and uh, and I don't just mean for like a battle or anything, it just felt like, alright, the Numenorians need to get to Middle-earth, the Harfoots need to get to their destination, everybody's got a place to go right now, and nobody's there yet. So it just felt like they were just putting some pieces into play so that next episode they can really blow us out of the water. And I hope that that's true. Sometimes you have to do that. So I'll give them a little leniency on that. We've been doing that on Westworld for three seasons. So (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Harsh, but fair. Okay, so if you had something in this episode where you were like, all right, I'm not a lore guy, but I'd like to be one. I'm an aspiring lore master. What what was it that was confusing you? What what was it that sort of piqued your interest? Um, definitely the ice and fire themes with Meteor Man. Um, I'm mm. I, Aaron and I talked a little bit about this on our podcast. How uh, fire can be, uh, I, I guess, in Tolkien's work, a force of good or a force of evil. There's it's associated with mm. both kind of sides of it. Right. Um, but the ice being introduced here, I thought, as sort of a healing force for whoever Meteor Man is, I thought it was interesting. I, I don't have any clues as to what it means, but seems seems Well, to me I don't like, either for you. Okay, perfect. <laughs> um, I, the fire thing, Aaron's definitely right on. I mean, the at the core of the world is the secret flame, is, is the sacred fire that sort of keeps the world burning and is this holy flame. And that's why when Gandalf is fighting the Balrog, he's like, I am a servant of the secret flame. So uh, okay. that that's a thing. That is a thing. So fire can be good. Fire can also be used by Morgoth. Uh, he collects fire spirits. He turns them into Balrogs. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it can be used for evil. So that's sort of a, a balanced element, I guess. Uh, ice, I have no clue on. That's that's sort of not that explored as far as I know in Tolkien. So they're, they're, doing a, they're playing a lot of jazz in the show. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I've been on board up until this episode. This episode irked me a little on some of the lore changes. Only because they go to some core things rather than ancillary things. I, I'm dying to hear an example because obviously I did, did not have these these problems with it. Well, I think that's a way to get into our first segment, which is on Silmarils and A.R. and Deal the Mariner uh, because I don't know what they're doing with the Silmarils in this show. They are way far away from where it is in the books uh, in the books, the Silmarils are basically done at the end of the first stage. You're never going to hear about them again, at least except in like stories. Uh, but there's no hope of recovering them again. And let's get there. Let's figure out why. All right. So we've heard A.R. and Deal be name dropped a few times. Elrond swore on him. That's his father. Uh, when he swore to Durin, he had the whole father son talk with Durin. Uh, Kella Brimbor mentioned in this episode, you know, your father was the only one who could do this. And um, I just think that we need to go deep on this one. So we've heard the Silmarils a lot, right? That was what Mm -hmm. they say that Mithril is made of. I'll get there. (laughs) 
So the Silmarils were the three jewels made by Feanor, this elf that did a lot of nasty things in the First Age, but he was the greatest smith of all time. And they were made out of the light of the two trees, uh, which we saw in the prologue. So Jim, having watched the show without the lore knowledge so far, what does a Silmaril mean to you? Not a whole lot, I have to say. Um, I feel like this is kind of the most information I've gotten on Silmaril so far. Uh, and th the idea that they're leaking down into sort of the bedrock here um, to be mined later on, I, I thought was kind of cool. If you're going <laughs> to tell me it's sacrilege, I'm okay with that too, but I still think it's a pretty cool concept. So that's why I wanted to ask you about it, because to me, knowing the lore of the Silmarils, that was like a big departure from the lore and it it was to the point where i was actually annoyed by it so i wanted to know was that just cool to someone who doesn't know the story of the silmarils it was at least to me to this person who doesn't know uh but i am curious as to why you know what what parts of the lore did it violate i guess um other than like you said it, them not being around much after the first age well that's basically the point is they're not around after the first stage. So I'm going to walk okay. you through how we get there and then I'll and then I'll show you why it's sort of a weird thing to have it around here. Okay. So, the Silmarils at some point were stolen by Morgoth, right? Mhm. Mm and he wore them in a crown. It was a cool getup where he had these like magical jewels that he could only have in his crown cuz they would burn his hands cuz they were good and he was bad. Ah. And Basically, at the end of the war where Morgoth is defeated, two of the Silmarils end up back with Madros and Maglor, two of the sons of Feanor, who were burned by them because they also had some bad mojo in them. <laughs> uh, because, you know, the sons of Feanor and Feanor himself just are filled with not great things. Yeah. So Madros takes himself and he's like, well, I'm getting burned by this, can't have it, so I'm going to cast myself into a fiery pit with this Silmaril. And so that Silmaril and Madros ends up in the earth okay. ends up in middle earth uh and then maglor casts his silmaril into the sea and not not much more is written about him but so one's in the earth one's in the sea so before morgoth was defeated though the other silmaril was taken from him and it was taken from him by baron and luthien who we haven't covered on this podcast so much but it's a very famous love story that Tolkien wrote uh, based on himself and his wife. And they took a Silmaril from the crown of Morgoth by singing him to sleep. So, in comes Earendil. Earendil was the son of Tuor, who was a man, and Idril, an elf. So he's another half-elf. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, we got feedback, actually. I incorrectly said he was a descendant of Baron and Luthien on a previous oh. podcast. He is not. He is the son of Tuor and Idril. A different elf-human pairing. <laughs> so, Jim, do you remember where uh, Arendir was like, oh, yeah, only two people have done this before, and it wasn't great? Mm-hmm. Well, here you go. That's you got Idril and Tuor, Baron and Luthien. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Arendir saw that Morgoth was doing a number on Middle-earth, and he's like, you know what? I'm the only one who can do this. I'm half-man. I'm half-elf. I'm going to go on behalf of both peoples to Valinor and plead for the help of the Valar. Now, was that just a political thing where the elves and the humans wouldn't work together unless they had a half-elf, half-human to unite them? Well, the issue was you couldn't really get there. It was really, really hard in the First Age, in the late First Age, to get to Valinor. Hmm. Uh, we have feedback on that, too, so I'll get deeper into that later. But uh, basically, there were these things called the Enchanted Isles, 
that would like put somebody to sleep if they got into them. Okay. And so it made it impossible to get to Valinor without permission. No autopilot so, on their boats. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> so um, Arendil is the one who says, I'm going to attempt it anyway. Now let's go back to Baron and Luthien because they have a descendant named Elwing who ends up with that Silmaril, and she is the wife of Arendil and the mother of Elrond and Elros. So she has the Silmaril, and she's getting chased by the sons of Feanor, and she says, well, I'd rather them not get it because they're kind of bad people. So she casts herself and the Silmaril into the sea, where she is transformed into a giant white bird by the Valar. This is back in the very mythic era of Tolkien. He's not as concerned with this, like, realism of sort of the Third Age. Uh-huh. So this giant bird, who was once Arendil's wife, finds him on the sea, gives him the Silmaril, and the light of the Silmaril lets him get to Valinor and plead for their mercy. Okay, it sort of guides his way, like a beacon. Right, exactly. And so Arendil pleads for the, for the Valar to go defeat Morgoth. They do it. He fights with them. And at the end, Elrond talked about this, Arendil is sent into the sky with a Silmaril as a star for all time. So he's going to fly in the sky forever. So what I'm getting here is that there are three Silmarils, all of which are accounted for, and none of which involve this particular scenario. Well, it's sort of like Earth, Wind, and Fire, except it's sky, earth, and, and sea. And you were supposed to have one Silmaril in each, and they're <laughs> supposed to remain in those places until the end of time, until Morgoth comes back at the in the end days. Because, you know, he, he's a Catholic. You have to have an apocalypse. <laughs> and uh, so during the apocalypse, Morgoth is supposed to come back, and the Silmarils are supposed to be found again, and then there will be paradise uh, where the two trees will be rekindled. Sure. So having it be this ore, be like channeled into an ore, really stretches that line of, are we messing with the core of what Tolkien wanted? Uh, and and that sort of bothers me, I guess. Yeah, I get you. So so it's the third one here, right? That ended up with Elwing, um, and then Yarendil took it into the sky that we're talking about in this episode. No, I think it's actually. I think if they're picking one, it was probably the one that Madros fell into a fiery pit with. Okay, okay, yeah, that would be roughly analogous, I guess. That or but see again, like they said, oh, it was in a tree. How? Because he went into a fiery mm-hmm. pit. Like, did it float up somehow? Or yeah, they definitely seem to be rewriting that. Um, yeah, I understand, you know, uh, people yeah. who've, who've read the books and have a lot invested in that. But me as as a layman here, I just thought mm-hmm. it was cool. <laughs> That's OK. I, I mean, I think the fiery pit idea is cool, too. I don't think it ruins my experience, but it did irk me as a lore guy. Sure. That's that's sort of where I'm at. Um, but a cool thing about this Silmaril thing with Arendil uh, Arendil, remember, is the father of Elrond and Elros, mm-hmm. who was the first king of Numenor. And Arendil, when he was sent to the sky, actually guided the Edain, which were the proto-Numenorians, okay. uh, to the island of Numenor. He sort of led them from the sky to their new home. Interesting. Okay, so his dad sort of brought brought him over there with them? Exactly. So they, yeah. they sort of helped them get over there. And uh, so Muriel and Farazon and... Elendil and Isildur and Aearian are all from this line of Elros. So so they're from this sort of royal blood, but then Tarmiriel and her father are in the ruling line. Mm-hmm. So that's how we get the Silmarils where they are. 
That's sort of why that irked me in the show. Again, didn't ruin the episode for me. Doesn't ruin the show for me. But I, I, uh, I was a little like, wait, they did what with a Silmarillion? <laughs> <laughs> sure. How, how many of those do you think it takes before it does ruin the show for you? Because every little Ooh. change, you know, piles on to the changes before, right? I'll say this. If they stop a man from reaching death, that is my breaking point. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> that is like the hard rule of Tolkien is men have the gift of death. Yes. If they take that away from my boys, I'm turning off the TV. Probably not because <laughs> I do a podcast. Uh, but, <laughs> but you will talk very loudly and very angrily about it. I will. Much like tonight about Silmarils. <laughs> To transition to this next very short section on Mithril, here's a quick note that Arendil's ship was supposedly made of Mithril. Wow. A whole ship made of Mithril? Mm-hmm. I've only, I've only seen a small nugget of it, so that seems like a lot to me. But <laughs> Well, that's the thing, is Mithril seems to have been in other areas, like perhaps Numenor and perhaps Valinor, and found in Middle-earth before this whole supposed tree incident that Gilgalad is talking about. Uh, So it's a little confusing of how that even happens. Again, I think the show is just playing on a lot of jazz here, really freeform right now uh, with this Silmaril stuff. But Mithril is certainly a cool concept. I like the idea of having the light of the trees in an ore. Uh, It's sort of of a little bit of dwarvish justice because they were awoken, awoken. We talked last week, Jim. They were awoken before the elves. And then Eru Luvatar said, ah, you got to go back to sleep until my kids are awake. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's a little dwarven du- justice. Yeah. Yeah. Now they hold the, as Durin's so fond of, the entire fate of the elves <laughs> in their hand. Yeah. I loved that. I love what, what so helped it. <laughs> so that's my main point is they're definitely not related to the Silmarils. Maybe they are on the show. Or maybe that's Gilgalad's theory and he just doesn't know. And, uh, He's hopeful, you know, and maybe that's not what's going to save the elves. Okay, the other thing that really bothered me with that, why are they suddenly fading in a season? Yeah, that's a really good question. And and it ties, obviously, into building this tower. And I think, you know, everybody who's a lorehound already knows where this tower stuff is going. I I don't think that's a huge mystery. But to me, someone who uh, is only vaguely aware of that stuff, I think I see the path they're setting, and I I like that there. Um, But yes, it does seem very fast for the elves light to be fading yes especially because it seems to take sort of thousands of years to actually happen um and you know even after the elves like fade mm-hmm. they're still around in middle earth it's just that most of the elves have gone and they just have small little civilizations like elvish glory is over but it's not like the soul death that elrond describes i i don't really I don't really know where they got that from. I mean, that's sort of what how they describe it in the history of Middle-earth at times. Mm-hmm. But that's for, like, thousands and thousands of years of elf living, is that's how an elf would die naturally. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe that's the period in which it starts, or it becomes inevitable. Maybe. Maybe by spring, if, if this is not corrected, it's inevitable that they will fade. Well, they'll solve that problem in, like, 5,000 more years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, anyway, so that's my beef. I'm done with my beef for the night. That's my complaint train. It's done. And uh, let's talk a little bit more about Mithril. I just have one last thing. I took a quote out of the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, because it's really the only place I could find that Mithril was adequately described. It could be beaten like copper and polished like glass, 
and the dwarves could make of it a metal, light and yet harder than tempered steel. Its beauty was like that of common silver, but the beauty of mithril did not tarnish or growth dim. The elves dearly loved it, and among many uses, they made of it Ithildin, Star Moon, which you saw open the doors. They're talking about the doors of Moria there. You remember that uh, speak friend and enter door? Oh, yes. So that's made out of the mithril uh, stuff that elves make. I really like this description because it feels like a synthesis between the dwarves and the elves. You know, you've got the, the yeah. stone, uh, the, the, the solidity of the stone being beaten, right? Or the metal being beaten. And then you've got the fragility and the the finesse um, of the, the glass being able to polish it. Uh, it really feels like a good synthesis of the two. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that Khazad-dûm and the ruins in Moria really do stand as a testament to dwarven and elvish relations and friendship and ties. Uh, and I think that that's sort of important for Legolas and Gimli to see later. Uh, when they enter there in the Lord of the Rings. Sure. Yeah, I was going to say, at least for this age, it'll stand. You know, one other lore question I had, sort of a general lore thing, is why do these benevolent gods allow so much evil? I see Sauron coming back 5, 10, 15 times, who knows how many times. (laughs) And every time it seems like it's left up to the men and the elves and the dwarves to fight them off. Why do the gods why does arugula allow this <laughs> Eru arugula where's the t-shirt i keep asking for it and the bald move art club is just failing me <laughs> um great question tolkien wrestled with that his whole life his friend c.s lewis wrote a whole book about it called the problem of pain where he goes into you know because they're both christians and he's like well how does mm-hmm. a good god have pain in this universe and c.s lewis has his own answer but tolkien puts something in in this world in the creation story that I think illuminates his thoughts on it, where in the Ainulindale, which is a big word for the music of the Ainur, this is the music where Eru Arugula, the creator god, sort of conducted this orchestra of the Valar, of the Maiar, of all the other holy ones who don't even go into creation. And this blueprint is for the all is for all of creation. So this symphony becomes a blueprint for all of creation. And that is what tells the Valar what to do with how to create the world, how to maintain it, things like that. When the uh the elves awake, when the men awake, uh those are all themes and different motifs sort of in the music of the Ainur. And he wrote that because he could not play music very well, but he admired it so much. Okay. I think yeah. that's a fun story. Makes sense. Now With that big preface to your question, Jim, Melkor, which becomes Morgoth later, is one of the Valar, and he's one of the instruments in this this orchestra, but he keeps sowing discord. He keeps being dissonant with the other Mm. instruments, and every time he does, Eru Iluvatar gets up from his throne, and he puts down a new theme that makes it sound beautiful, and at the end, he says, "All all that you do in evil, I will turn to good. And I think that that's Tolkien's thinking is like, there's all this pain in the universe, but in the end, I will turn it to good. Okay. So it's not identical to Christianity's response right. to this, but it's... I, it kind of is. It's like God's plan, you know? It's uh, Yeah, totally. And and free will and all that stuff, yeah. right? I mean, sure. I, I, I know why the Christians uh, believe the way they believe about that, but let me ask you this. Why doesn't he just do away with the person who eventually becomes Morgoth. Well, 
Manwe and Morgoth, Manwe's the king of the Valar, the good one, they are both the only ones who have a piece of all of Eru Lubitar's mind, who understand, like, a little piece of him, and who have, like, a little hmm. piece of his power, of all the kinds of it. Everyone else has a section of it. And I think that you're sort of supposed to see a little bit of the duality that you see in Christianity with good and evil uh, there, and I sure. think that free will is a part of it, too, so... Um, mm-hmm. Tolkien, I believe, would say that Eru Iluvatar's plan, as far as the fate of the world, will always come true, as in, like, salvation will happen for the world. The question is, mm-hmm. do individual souls, do individual people end up good? Do they do good things or bad things with their lives? And the it'll work out. It's funny, in Wheel of Time, there's a similar concept, and it's just, like, the pattern. It's called the pattern, and that's just every... The pattern will always... Mm-hmm make the story come out the same way, but individual people can make little choices in the room. And I think that that's sort of how Tolkien works about it, too. Okay. Makes sense. So there is a little bit of free will in there, too. Yeah. Um, I think on the little things. Yeah, yeah. And I think as far as your individual fate, it's like Gollum, if he had willfully destroyed the ring, may have been better on an individual level while still having the same result as accidentally destroying the ring. Sure. Makes sense. All right, so that's that's pretty much all my thoughts on that subject. Do you have any other lore questions going on? Nothing specific, no. What is that noise? Oh, it looks like one of Manway's eagles just dropped a package in my lap. It's a tape recording labeled From the Misty Mountains. Let me hit play on this. Hey, John, hope you're doing well. I'm uh, still out on my business trip, and things have been busy but been going really well. Uh, I had a little break last night, and I was able to catch up with Episode 5. So here are my hot takes from the road after a single watch. This episode was absolutely packed with stuff, so I'm going to do my best here with just a few general comments. And then I've got two notes with a little bit more substance to them. So first is I'm really continuing to enjoy the Hartford storyline with Meteor Man and Nori. I'm really glad that they didn't make the Hartford simply just kind of like Ewok-like characters, but they're giving them some seriousness and some gravity to, to what's going on. I'm also really enjoying the ongoing relationship between uh, Durin and Elrond. These two actors have great chemistry, and it's just really fun to see them on screen together. The one bigger piece of criticism I have this week is that the Bronwyn and Arondir story, that, that storyline has been generally pretty good, but this week it was a little bit cringy with me, and, and um, I don't have time to talk about all the Southlander stuff, but I just felt there were some really weak bits with the scripting, and then I think that affected the actors and their ability to, to deliver what they had in front of them. That said, the stuff with Waldrick is getting really interesting. He's turning out to be a lot more than just a bit part, and uh, I'm here for it. I, I think uh, what's going on over there is really, um, really fascinating. Okay, Galadriel. I, I just can't imagine that, uh, you know, her going up onto that ship, all dressed in her armor and getting into, you know, ready to go for action. This is her safe space, right? This is her comfort zone. She is no more happier. Well, maybe she might be as happy riding a horse, but getting ready to go into battle and, you know, leading a, a, a force of uh, uh, fighters into, you know, dangerous situation. Like she's just an action junkie. And you could just really see that in her face, both when she was boarding the ship and then when she was having the training fight with the cadets. Uh, And great choreography with the sword fight stuff, too. That was really good. 
um, Isildur, his story, I thought, got really super interesting. They laid down some serious tracks for what is going to happen with him uh, at the end with the Battle of the Last Alliance uh, and the movies and what, you know, what he does and doesn't do with the ring. I, I really need to go back and, and rewatch that scene with him and um, uh, Volondil, I think is his name. His friend, who is also, I believe, a character in the in the in the writings, um, there's some really juicy bits in there in setting up Isildur's character flaws that might ultimately lead to um, what happens when they have that final battle with Sauron. Okay, so with those out of the way, here are a couple more my substantive takes. Uh, first, the vibes from the Numenorians going to war. Wow, this is the showrunners again bringing in Tolkien's World War I life experience. It's really blowing me away at how they're able to build in these facets of Tolkien's life into the story. I mean, we had the, the orcs in their trenches with their sort of like masks and helmets and stuff on, and then the wasteland scenes when Arondir tries to get up over the, uh, over the wall. I mean, these are total World War I vibes. And then here we have the young Numenorians signing up and full of patriotic verve and, and uh, off to go become heroes. And I can't ima- you know, I can't but help think that like maybe that's what it felt like, you know, if you were um, uh, a young person, you know, on either side of World War One, you know, rallying to the call and going out and, and, and hoping that you're going to like find honor and glory and all of this kind of stuff. But what we know is that it's going to get really dire and it's going to be horrific. And while Sauron's got to be confronted. It's going to cost something, and I think that's really embedded in the writings of Tolkien, and I think that the showrunners are really tapping into a rich vein there, and they're showing us that as well as telling us. So I think mm, really good stuff. Okay, lastly, I know, big elephant in the room, the war stuff. Um, I haven't had time to really catch up on what's going on in the Twitterverse or the Discordverse. Uh, I'm sure there are plenty of Tolkienists who are wailing and gnashing teeth and lighting hair on fire. Um, But I think I want to put something forward here. I think this is the place where we need to bring in the shippy test. Rather than just sort of emotionally reacting uh, to this stuff, I think if we um, use Shippy's test to analyze a little deeper, we can start to put our fingers on exactly what might be bothering us and what might actually be necessary for the story. And, um, you know, where where there are legitimate changes um, necessary because of the medium, and then where changes are that have moved us out of the core message uh, or the core intentions of the, the author. I don't think I've got enough time to go into the details of all of these, but I'll just lay a couple of things out. Um, I think we've got three areas to address with the lore stories. One, we've got the relationship between the elves and the dwarves and how that develops. Next, we've got the creation myth of uh, the Mithril. And I think there's a sub-story in there, which is sort of a good versus evil style conflict between um, the elf and the Balrog and the tree and all of that. And I think uh, I saw an email from Marilyn, and she had some thoughts on that, too. So I think we need to dig into this a little bit more, because this may be a place where Tolkien has moved off message, or uh, the showrunners have moved off of Tolkien's message. 
And then um, this whole question of the the elves needing the mithril to sustain themselves, and then you know, and then ultimately you know, they're a counter check to the the rising evil. So those are three areas that I can see that there may be some problems, and and we can apply the shippy test. Uh, I also want to. And without getting into those, maybe we can get into those uh, a little bit later on a a future audio diary or or when I get back. But I want to lay out a couple more circumstances to consider. Remember that while they have a Amazon has a massive budget to to spend, they're still time constrained, so they got to do a lot of work. Um, As they, as we know, as like I talked last time, they only have rights to eight episodes per season because of the way that the rights are structured. So they've got to do a lot to ramp up points of conflict that create the dramatic tension that we need for for storytelling uh, in the television medium. And we've got to hook not only deep lore fans, but casual fans, and then totally new fans into the story, and then create that pathway into season two so we can carry the story forward. So if we look at some of those circumstances and then we look at those three different areas where, where lore might have shifted, I think we've got some space for some um, fruitful conversation and potential legit criticism of the showrunners for the choices they made rather than just sort of setting our hair on fire and running around the yard screaming about how uh, Amazon is destroying uh, Tolkien's legacy. Um, so I think maybe we'll uh, put a pin in that and hopefully talk about that a little bit in the, in the future. Um, okay, I got to bounce. I've got some stuff to catch up on. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed this episode a lot. I don't know if it where it ranks in terms of my favorite. I may have to do a whole season rewatch to to get that vibe. But I, I really did enjoy it because I, I just thought that there was they moved so much of the storylines forward, and there was some really great acting and action scenes as as well. So. Thanks again, man, for holding on the fort. I really appreciate it. Uh, I hope you're having some good interviews with Marilyn and Jim and Aaron. And I'm super looking forward to getting back um, after, uh, I think, October 8th is when I get back. Um, so to catch up with everyone in podcast land and, uh, and cover some of the finale, I uh, hope we can get some uh, maybe some live watch action in and definitely some postseason recaps. Um, again, so thanks a lot, John. Uh, I hope you're well, and we'll talk to you soon. Well, I'm really glad that David found one of Manway's eagles to bring that in because I always love his takes. He's always so positive about these shows, even when I'm a little grumpy about the lore. So thanks for that, David. I hope you're getting this via the Internet because I don't have one of Manway's eagles to send this back to you. But we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, you're going to hear part two of my interview with Marilyn Pukila, returning Tolkien scholar. Welcome back, and here's part two of my interview with Marilyn R. Pukila, returning Tolkien scholar and librarian emerita. If you missed part one of our interview, head back to the last Lorecast on episode four, and you will find part one where we discuss our more general thoughts about the series. Anyway, here's our segment on the Palantiri. saw Muriel and Galadriel 
using the Palantir for the first time in the series. So we're going to go through the history of the Palantir. Uh, there's not a ton of it. It's mostly uh, explored in the Third Age. It's mostly explored after all of these events in the show. But let's just talk about the origins very briefly and sort of what they might represent to Tolkien. Sure. So what is so poignant to me is the connection with uh, Numenor is that the Palantiri were made by the elves on Tol Arisea, or actually we don't know, they're probably made by Thanor, but they were given by the elves on Tol Arisea to the faithful at Numenor back when they were forbidden from sailing to Numenor so that they could still keep in touch. And that just is so, to me, so poignant. No, I know that there were seven stones that they received. And I think one of them was considered a master stone, and that was one that they placed in the one in the towers near to the Grey Havens. Right. So you have um, seven stones given from the elves of Tolarisea to the faithful of Valinor. My my one question is: How is Muriel getting one of these? we haven't seen Amandil. We haven't even heard his name. So we don't know if he's around right now. I'm hoping he is. I'm hoping that there's something going on between Amandil and Anarion who has been name dropped. I thought they had dropped him from the show until he got name dropped. So I thought they had just replaced him with a sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so my question is, how did Muriel get this? But assuming that it's fine that she got this and that, that they weren't being sort of kept away by the faithful, um, I have a brief description here from Unfinished Tales of Numenor and Middle-earth that I think really shows what Tolkien was going for in the feel of the Palantiri. Mm-hmm. They were perfect spears, appearing when at rest to be made of solid glass or crystal deep black in hue. At smallest, they were about a foot in diameter, but some, certainly the stones of Osgiliath and Amonsol, were much larger and could not be lifted by one man. Originally, they were placed in sites suitable to their sizes and intended uses, standing on low round tables of black marble in a central cup or depression, in which they could at need be revolved by hand. They were very heavy, but perfectly smooth, and would suffer no damage if by accident or malice they were unseated and rolled off their tables. They were indeed unbreakable by any violence then controlled by men, though some believed that great heat such as that of Orodrin, which is Mount Doom, uh, might shatter them, and surmised that this had been the fate of the Ithilstone in the fall of Barad-dûr. So that gives us sort of a brief description of the Palantiri. So there are these perfect spheres, they're extremely heavy, they're in various sizes, although we've seen sort of a uniform size between the Peter Jackson movies and Numenor. Uh, but... There's seven of them here. They're indestructible. They might be able to be destroyed in Mount Doom. Um, and they may have been made by Feanor, the guy who made the Silmarils. So that's where we're at now. Indestructible stones. They let you see. And uh, and that's about it for now. With one more piece, also from Unfinished Tales. The stones were a gift to Elendil and his heirs. Hmm. For whom alone they belonged by right. So that is that is interesting because this exactly. is the first Muriel has ever heard of Elendil. Exactly. And that also reaches forward to Aragorn hmm. when he takes the stone from Gandalf and says, you know, 
I am the only one who has the right to use these things. Right. That's that's very fascinating when he he sort of takes a step in front of Gandalf, because before that, we've seen Aragorn deferring to Gandalf in basically yes. every uh, every situation. And then Gan- Aragorn suddenly says, nope, I'm the heir to this. I'm doing this. Don't take this moment away from me. I think he saw it as a sign. The fact that it had been recovered because they, nobody knew what had happened to them. And suddenly, you know, at least two of them are popping up again. And so he he sees this as, okay, it's time for me to seize this piece of my heritage and maybe even make use of it. Right. And so we, we don't know exactly which seeing stone we're seeing in this show right now, but we do know that this is one of the seven that end up part of the kingdom that Aragorn is heir to, part of Gondor and Arnor. If they're following the lore. Well, and, we'll, and in we'll one way, <laughs> In one way... Um, they are being slightly um, inaccurate concerning the Palantir because they were not designed to foretell the future. Hmm. And that is very much tinged with Goetia. Mm. You know, yeah, I think, I think uh... they're drawing upon our cultural knowledge of, you know, quote unquote, crystal balls. <laughs> yeah, I think saying, that could be okay, true. Here's, here's a way that the audience can relate to this. So, you know, and also, of course, as, as a device to, you know, foretell and i know some people were kind of disappointed that they're doing that so early in in the season um you know they're already saying this is what's going to happen well i think that one thing is i think that there's a throwaway line somewhere it might have been in the silmarillion where they say it was said that the kings of old could see so well into the palantiri that they could get a glimpse of the future something like that i'd have to find that line but i think that there's like an old legend it's one of those hearsay things in the silmarillion so maybe that's what they're playing with i the the line of elros is said to have foresight anyway so you could by extension say that the palantiri as a device extended that power further out but I want to come back to your question of how in the world did Muriel get a hold of one? I mean, they, they do have this sort of escape clause when they say, we don't know where the six others are. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah, that that also bothered me because I, I, I said, you know, well, we have to know where they are later, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, they don't have to do a whole lot. <laughs> Well, we, we need at least a few to do the Lord of the Rings, so I hope that they at least <laughs> get a few over uh, to where they need to be. Um, well, but see, this is the thing. Your information and mine came from Unfinished Tales, to which they don't have the rights unless right. they go and request them. So they right. may have made a whole bunch of requests. Maybe they made six requests to make sure that they right. had seven Palantiri. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I believe that they do mention seven in the Lord of the Rings. I'd have to double check that. Oh, of course they do. Um, seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. Right. Right. So, um, but but what I just hope is that they make it at least consistent enough with Lord of the Rings where it makes sense that you have Pippin and Sauron and uh, Saruman with access to these things on Denethor. So you need you need at least three to do the Lord of the Rings. Three. Yeah. And, you know, that level of detail, who knows if they're really going <laughs> to do that. If they are, it will be out of sheer love for us lorehounds, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um so I have a few more details on the Palantiri. We have uh, the minor stones versus the major stones. So there are minor stones that have sort of a fixed orientation. Uh, you have to sort of 
figure out which direction they can see in and and how far they can see. Um, whereas you have these major stones where you can sort of turn it around. You can use this as a globe and and move around the stone so that you can see where you want to see. Um, the stones can't see in the darkness. They can see through walls. They can go into a cave if the cave have a, has a candle. But if the candle goes out, you can't see anything. So that's really important to like, can you see where Gollum is? Can you see... Um, you know, into into parts of Mount Doom, into Barador, into a- any of these places where something funny is happening with Sauron's forces. So the last thing I just wanted to bring in, and, and this goes back to uh, your magic systems, is the stones could not read minds unless one person was looking into another person's mind who's also looking into one of the Palantiri. So that's why, you know, Sauron and Denethor can be in a battle of wits, or Aragorn and Sauron... But you can't, Sauron can't use the Palantir to go into Aragorn's mind just when Aragorn's sitting around. Right. In many cases, um, the one mind couldn't overcome the other mind unless it were a very strong mind. So that's, that's the, you know, get out of jail card, which allows Sauron to overcome Pippin to, you know, tell him whatever he knew, <laughs> even though Pippin tried to resist. Right. So, yeah, that's about it that I have for the Palantiri. Um, do you have any thoughts on what we're going to see with them going forward? I know you mentioned the scene to the future is a little hazy, uh, a l- little bit stretch of the lore. Um, but but a- any other thoughts on what we might see them used for again in the series? Or is that perhaps the last time we see them? Well, it could be a device by which the faithful have been keeping in touch with each other. So, so do you think we're going to be having conversations between Anarion and Elendil or, or Isildur uh, through these Palantiri at home? At some point, we're going to have to if we get those three characters to the places where we know they have to be. Right. So I don't spoil it for other people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope we see some of that. I think that would be very cool. So uh, I, I'm hoping that the rest of the season is as good as it has been and even better. I hope that... Uh, they work out a few of our minor criticisms that we've had so far and that everything is just as as Tolkien would have made it. He wouldn't have made the show, but uh, as close to Tolkien would have made it if he had written it himself. So, uh, Marilyn, is there anything else you'd like to say to our audience before we let you go? Well, just for those of us who do have really deep love and connection to the lore, um, it can feel frustrating sometimes when you stub your toe against things that you just know are not how Tolkien wrote it. Um, I've, I've tried to make my peace with that by just viewing it on its own terms and not insisting that it be, you know, a recreation because it can't be. We know this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be different for each of us at what point we consider it to have gone off the rails. Um and so if we can remember that when we're in conversation with other people, I think that's more helpful than trying to do the, the right-wrong dichotomy. Because in the end, I, you know, each person can say if it's right or wrong for themselves, but not for anybody else. And only Tolkien knows what Tolkien would have thought. And to say otherwise, I think is, is you know, it's a little bit of hubris. Especially after this last episode, I think that's a great note to leave this portion of the interview on. More of Marilyn's interview will be available on next week's Lorecast, so stick around for that. Next, Jim and I are going to tackle some listener feedback. 
And we're back. Jim, it's time for us to do some listener feedback. So you want to start us off? Great. All right, let's start off with Nicole, who says, Isn't Earendil the descendant of Tuor and Idril, the second pairing of man and elf, uh, leading to the fall of Gondolin? After the pairing of Baron and Luthien. He wasn't the greatest in the line of Baron, although they were kin. Baron and Luthien had a son, Dior. Dior had two sons and a daughter, Elwing. Elwin and Yarendil married and had Elrond and Elros. It was a merging of two unions of elf and man that led the Valar to give the descendants a choice on which race to be counted in. Baron Luthien, of course, died twice. Yarendil is the guard of the Evening Star slash Cimmeril, and Elwing flies to him, staying with the Teleri on Tajiza. Tol Erasea. And Elwing flies to him, staying with the Teleri on Tol Erasea, right? Yes. Okay, so I made a mistake. I said he was a descendant of Baron and Luthien, and I have failed you as your lore hound. So I hope you can forgive me. But it is a good way to bring in this sort of beautiful story of uh, Arendil being... Sorry, Elrond and Elros being the fusion of these two elf-man pairings and a little bit of Maiar blood, too. And I think that that was Tolkien's point, was Elrond and Elros were sort of the perfect union of all these peoples of middle earth hmm. other than dwarves because fuck them but <laughs> <I> guess, yeah. <laughs> um but you know i think that that's a beautiful story and sorry that i messed it up a little i mean your true mistake was having me read that paragraph with all those names <laughs> ah you did great <laughs> thank you i tried nicole continues and the reference to the fall of gondolin leads me to adar who has to be a callback to eol and maybe even meglin the sword hilt has to be referencing Gurthang. That can't be how you <laughs> say it. That's a lot of words. Can't be how you say that. That's pretty much way how you say it. That's all right. I, I, I think you pretty much got it. So, Aeol and Meglin. I was going to talk about that on that last podcast about fallen elves because Aeol is the elf given the designation Dark Elf, and Meglin is his son who was half Dark Elf and half Noldor. So he was sort of this combination of having the light in his eyes and being this darkness. And he was a really cool and not that great dude. And uh, there's speculation that maybe he survived the fall of Gondolin, which was this big tragic thing in the first age. And maybe they're trying to make Adar him. But there's nothing about him surviving in the writings. Nicole continues, one final thought. I have seen the theories that Adar is Meglin, who somehow survived the fall of Gondolin. People are speculating the scars are due to the fire of Gondolin, the stone knife was referenced to Malvern, and the sword he is seeking is Anguirel. Boy. You got it. If any of that is true, I hope Elrond gets to kill that asshole in battle, and that's closure for Meglin trying to murder his father and grandmother during their escape from Gondolin. Personally, I hope it isn't true, but I do love the concept of a dark elf being a lieutenant of Sauron, or shall I say, lieutenant. Looking forward to your deep dive on this one. <laughs> But justice for the romance of Tuor and Idril, they are always forgotten. The House of Huor produced great men, too. I would love to see someone tackle the Tale of Turin. The Tale of Turin is... J.R.R. Tolkien writes A Song of Ice and Fire. It is the most brutal tale I can find in all of Tolkien's writings. It has incest. It has murder of friends accidentally and on purpose. And it's uh, really, really brutal. I'd recommend any of you George R. R. Martin fans who are like, oh, this doesn't have enough blood and gore for me. Go read The Children <laughs> of Hurin. Um, okay. So thank you for bringing that in, Nicole. And I could see your Meglin theory. 
I don't like it, but I accept it. All right, let's move on to Mark, who asks, can you provide any background on what the Palantirs are and where they've traveled by the Third Age? Well, Mark, by now you've heard the interview with me and Marilyn Pukila where we go deep on this, so rewind if you missed it. All right, let's move on to Donald. Hey, y'all, Frodo Swaggins here. Curious about a theory I ran across about Adar, possibly being Meglor, Feanor's son, Feanor's son, excuse me, Uh, and if you had any insight on it. It would seem we know nothing about Meglor's life after he tossed Simril into the ocean, except he strolled the shores of Arda, belting out his favorite show tunes. Also, I noticed Arda only wears one gauntlet, maybe from a terrible burn he received from his Simril for his naughty attitude. Mm. He also wasn't known for being the most stand-up Keebler in history, just curious what you guys thought of this, and if you had any fun lore additions for this theory. And he says he'll remove his mithril-foiled hat now. Sorry for the long <laughs> email. I just love what you guys are doing, and I hope it stays successful for y'all. Could you make a mithril tinfoil hat? Pro- yeah. Like, if could you, you make it that it, thin? I, I would assume so. Yeah. That's a great question. Right in. Um, yes, yeah, so I could see it being Meglor. I could also see it not being Meglor. We talked last week about the Fallen Elves. Uh, I, I prefer that theory because I don't think that... I So I think that that would not go too deep into the Silmarillion territory. And we know that they have to go to the Tolkien estate for every single thing they want to take out of the Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's other podcasts with the, the real texty people where they... They've talked about sort of a few things that they've noticed that are definitely not in Lord of the Rings that they've included in the show. I don't know exactly what those things are, but I'm assuming that the more detailed it is, the harder it's going to get to get that from the Tolkien estate because it becomes closer to a Silmarillion adaptation. And they've been trying to avoid that forever. So I don't think it's going to be one of the named characters like Meglor or Meglin that we've talked about, but... I could be wrong. You know, I was wrong about Silmarils being unable to become <laughs> or so uh-huh. uh, stay tuned with me. Yeah. Just listen to that jazz. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to David. Not not the Lorehounds, David, I don't believe. Uh, but he says Durin's father doesn't want Durin to continue to mine the new vein of Mithril. Could it be he knows that the Balrog, who we later see Gandalf fighting in Lord of the Rings, is hiding down there? There are hints of this in Lord of the Rings when Gandalf is reading from Durin's journal when the Fellowship is crossing Moria. What do you think? Well, I think that that journal was actually from the latter, the the later elves. Um, and actually, if you look if you look at the timeline, that whole Balrog incident didn't really happen until much later. But I think that they might add it in this just to be cool. Yeah. Uh, which you know, fine. I'm I'm in for it. Uh, I don't think that Doran knows. I think that he just sees this as an unsafe mine at this point. And uh, I think he's really concerned about the elves coming in and wanting to mine because he's protective of his people and his mine. But no, I don't think he knows. <laughs> OK, let's move on to Billy says, I heard you say on the Doug 2 Deep podcast that you can just sail to Valinor during the Second Age. Is that right? I thought it was like super amazing that Yarendil made it all the way there during the First Age. Uh, it was made even more difficult after that. Actually, at at the beginning of the Second Age, or to almost the end of the Second Age, is the easiest time to get to Valinor except during the First Age. Because those Enchanted Isles we talked about, where Arendil had to get help from the Silmaril, mm-hmm. those were basically destroyed or weakened a lot in the war against Morgoth. 
Okay. So at the end of the first stage, those islands, that barrier is sort of taken down, and the Valar sort of don't worry about it for a while. I don't know why, but they don't. So uh, let's put this island right inside of paradise. Say, don't come here. Definitely don't touch the cookie. Mm -hmm. And see what happens. That's where we're at. (laughs) Yeah, sounds familiar. All right, Jim. That looks like all the feedback for this week. So thank you so much for being with me again. I know that you're not scheduled for anything yet, but I hope you come back on the Lorehounds on some kind of podcast uh, coming up soon. I know we're doing the White Lotus and the Wheel of Time, so... If any of that sounds fun to you, come on and and talk back with us. Yeah, I'd love to. Sounds good. And Jim, do you want to plug where you're at weekly? I'm over at baldmove.com or the Dug Too Deep podcast, uh, which is obviously covering Rings of Power. Comes out every Friday. Boy, we really hustle to try and get that out. Uh, (laughs) They don't make it easy for us. We're doing our best. Uh, Yeah, so there should be an episode of that out right now covering episode five of the Rings of Power. If you want to find that, just go... To your favorite podcast app and search Doug Too Deep. Very cool. And you can email Jim at Doug Too Deep at baldmove.com if you want to get feedback directly to him and Aaron. Jim, thanks for being here. Folks, that's the end of the episode, unless you want spoilers. If you do, stay tuned for the spoiler section after the credits. See you next week. The Rings of Power Lorecast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondage at baldmove.com or write into Jim and Aaron at dug2deep at baldmove.com. For all Lorehounds content, subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds. And for more Rings of Power content, subscribe to Dug Too Deep on your favorite podcasting platform. Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the spoiler section. Now, if you don't want spoilers, this is your last warning to get off the podcast now. But if you do, welcome. So, just a couple quick observations for me. Uh, I noticed that Isildur's friend, Velandil, has the same name as Isildur's future son. So, that's a fun little connection. Generally, on Isildur, I'm not super happy with how they've approached his character. I know that they have to add some kind of character arc since the story is so bare bones. But I don't like that Isildur has this sort of darkness in his heart from the beginning, because if you remember from the writings, if you've read this already, Isildur was actually a really stand-up guy. He's the guy who saves the White Tree. He's the guy who keeps faith when all others fail. So I don't really love that he's sort of flaky right now. But you know what? They've got to add an arc to him. Let's just go with that, and let's hope that they bring Isildur to the place where he should be by the end of this series. Now, let's get to some listener feedback on the spoiler section. First up, we've got Robert. Now, Robert says, I've been listening to the Second Age podcast, and I'm loving it so far. Thank you, Robert. Please forgive me if you've covered this already and I missed it, but I'm curious to get your take. Based on my understanding of the chronology of the Second Age, Celebrimbor and Isildur do not overlap at all in time. I believe Celebrimbor dies long before Isildur is born, and Celebrimbor is the one who creates the Rings of Powers, except the One Ring. However, the show is portraying a world, at least implicitly, where the Rings of Power don't exist yet, but Isildur is a young man. Is this show just condensing thousands of years of history for the sake of the narrative, or could there be something deeper going on? If I put my tin hat on, I think it's possible we are being shown two different times in Middle-earth. One time is much earlier and showing Elrond and Celebrimbor preparing to forge the rings. The other time is much later and showing the beginning of the end of Numenor. I'm no expert, so I'd love to hear what you all think. Thanks and be well. All right, Robert. Uh, Just one correction on your lore knowledge is uh, that 
Celebrimbor only made the three elven rings. The other rings were all made by lesser smiths in the same city uh, in Eregion. Uh, and, and then, obviously, the, the one ring is made by Sauron. Uh, I don't think that this is multiple timelines, at least these two, because we saw the direct effect of Galadriel being exiled from Linden is that she goes to Numenor and spurs Isildur and the other Numenorians to action. So I think we, these are the same timeline. I do think that they're being really sloppy about timelines uh, and just trying to condense it for the point of the show. Uh, but we could see this. We could see that... Sauron gets them to forge the rings with Celebrimbor, and then Sauron finishes his business there, and then as it happens in the books, he goes to Numenor afterwards, he gets captured for some reason. Maybe there's a big battle with the Numenorians, and that's how he gets captured, and that's how he corrupts Farazone and gets that moving. So this is sort of the way that uh, uh, I could see it being sort of like the lore, sort of faithful to the lore. All right, next up is... Elisa from Discord. Elisa says, Do you think Anatar is already conspiring with Celebrimbor and Gilgalad, and that is why they are lying to Elrond, concerned about fading, interested in Mithril, building their new fortress and forging rings? Well, this is one of my thoughts, because I don't like Mithril being linked to the Silmarils, and maybe this whole origin story of Mithril is actually a lie told to Gilgalad by Sauron and to Celebrimbor by Sauron as Anatar or some other figure. And um, and that that's why they think that they need the Mithril. Maybe he's trying to sow tension between the free peoples of Middle-earth so that they can't uh, go forward and resist him later and so that he can get help making the rings. So those are my thoughts. That's about it for the spoiler section this week. But I love doing these, so I hope everyone keeps writing in, and uh, we will see you next week. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.